Amen. Good morning. How are you guys doing? Great. Who's, who's liked the rain this weekend? A lot of rain, right? We needed it, and somehow we're still like two inches down, I know. Um, we had our men's retreat this weekend, and so the first night was great because I got to sleep outside, and you know, there's nothing better than sleeping with rain gently. Well, it wasn't gently, but right, I mean, rain falling on your tent. Um, the next night, last night, no, I guess that was two nights ago. See, I'm already messed up on my nights. Um, wasn't really raining a lot, but it was windy, and so it would shake the rain out of the tree. And so, like every 30 seconds or so, I would wake up because I'd hear these random little things ticking at my tent. And, um, and I'm trying to decide, is it, you know, Rick, or is it Harley, or is it some of the guys messing with my tent, or is it, you know, an animal that has come to visit, um, no, it was a good weekend. You know, as guys, you know, we talked about, you know, as men, like, we, we, we want to look the part, right? And so what we decided was to look like Jesus. That means we need to live, love, and serve like he did. And so that was our focus this weekend. So as we kind of exit retreat season with the women's conference two Sundays ago, or two weekends ago, and the men's retreat this weekend, um, I always like this season as we kind of get into the stretch run of the holidays, right? I mean, like... Tomorrow, like Tuesday, is November 1st. Can you believe November is here? I know. I don't know where the year has gone, you know, and, 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 and it seems like it moves quicker and quicker and quicker, but thank goodness that we have a, uh, a God that moves as much as he needs to every day in our lives, every day. Last week, if you're joining us, by the way, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors. If you're visiting with us, glad that you are here last week as we are close to wrapping Corinthians. We talked about God as a God of order in all things, including worship in our series, Better Together, and just the idea that God, He created us in order, He purposes us in order, we're supposed to worship in order, and just enjoy just the, as we did, just the 30-minute kind of systematic view of how God's order, you could see all the way through the Old and New Testament. You know, that it's going to take all of us, right? You know, as Paul keeps hammering back on the unity of the church, it's going to take all of us to men and women to, to lead and to, to minister and to press. And so I just love that picture of the church, a diverse church where male and female both get to minister and be Jesus' hands and feet. But we've got a lot to look at this morning, so uh, a large passage, and so I'll do my best to get through it in a timely manner. Um, if I fall asleep, uh, just wait, throw something at me and I'll wake up and continue on. If you fall asleep, I will throw something at you so that you can continue on. Um, yeah, you've got a discussion guide, by the way. Uh, you can grab on the way out if you want to do a deeper dive this morning. But we're going to be in chapter 15, which is the next to last chapter. And actually, this is the last chapter of substance. 16 is very short. And so we're going to split 16, or 15 into two weeks and then wrap up. But if you'll stay, actually, can we do this? Can we stand as I read this over us this morning? I know we don't do that anymore, but I don't know. Like, I've, I, just, I just want to read this over you this morning because here's the thing. If we believe that God is a promise keeper and a miracle worker, then we believe what he says, what Paul writes here in verse 1, and we'll go. So just receive this word of the Lord this morning. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, Paul says in verse 1 which you received, in which you stand. There you go. That's why I asked you to stand. And by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve in accordance, or excuse me, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Last of all is to one, or excuse me, then, then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. Last of all, Paul's talking about himself, is to one untimely born. He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I have persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Am. Love the hope there. I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me, whether that it, then it was I or they. So we preach, and so you believe. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, that not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise. If it is true, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our faith, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are a people most to be pitied. And I love this. But in fact, if Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man received this this morning shall also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam we all die, so is also in Christ we shall made be alive. I just want to stop there. So I just want to pray that. God, thank you that in you we are alive. And though we might feel like we're dying, we might feel like we're persecuted, we might feel like there's so much on our plates, God, that we have a hope and a future and a life in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. You may be seated. Thanks for allowing me to do that. Uh, I know we don't do that a lot around here, but I just, I just love this image as Paul is saying here, as you stand, and I thought, gosh, let's stand in that hope. Let's stand in that promise of that. So verses 3 through 7, just quickly, for I delivered to you as a first important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised, and that he appeared that's the historical church's teaching on the resurrection. This is what has been quoted for a thousand years, if not more, before it was even written. This is what, when Christians would gather together, they would remind themselves orally together that Jesus was dead, that he was buried, and that he was raised, and that he is now sitting on the throne. I just love that. Just like It gets no more difficult than that. It gets no more difficult than that. And so Paul is in part reminding the Corinthians of the gospel. He's reminding us of the gospel as well. And then I love this as well. He's also qualifying himself as someone who can speak on behalf of Jesus as an apostle. Something he's done over and over and over. And so, like, just this little note here. The Christian journey, right? And so you're like, well, it's Paul, right? I get it. Like, he's writing most of the New Testament. He's in position to say this. But I want to say this to you and to me, to us this morning. 
The Christian journey is the process of qualifying over and 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 over again and again and again. So I don't know like where you are in your walk. Maybe you're in a great place. I love those places, right? And maybe you're in a hard place. Those are a little bit harder to stomach, right? Because it feels like, gosh, I'm doing this over and over. And why am I right back at this fork in the road in this intersection? You know, and we have this idea that, you know, God, Jesus, will you come back, please? But the saying goes this way. God qualifies the called. He does not call the qualified. God qualifies the call, the, the called, because Paul was not qualified. Matter of fact, in verse 9, Paul says this. He says, right after he says he appeared to Cephas and the 12 and then the 500 and then the James. And in verse 9... He says, for I am the least of the apostles. Interesting, isn't it, that the author, the, the, the majority of the New Testament is the least of the apostles. Now, why would he say that? Right? Why would he say that? If you understand Paul's story, you know his story. He led a life that was as antithetical to the church as you could get. As antithetical, right? Matter of fact... In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, I just want to, he expands on this idea. I want to read this to you of this gospel. So the same gospel that he just wrote to the Corinthians, he's writing to the church at Ephesus as well. And he says this. So I don't know, like, if you're like, you know what? Like, I'm too far gone. There is no hope. I can't get back from this. I keep, I'm in this rut. I'm in this ditch. I find myself here all the time. Listen to what Paul has to say in chapter 3 of Ephesians. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. By the way, if you're like, well, I'm not a minister. Yes, you are. You are. A minister according to the gift of God's grace. It's only in God's grace we do anything, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though, I'm the, here you go. So here's the language. To me, though, I'm the very least of all the saints. See the language? This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and to the authorities in the heavenly places. We get to minister as Christ followers not just here but to authorities and to the heavenly places. Amen? I don't know if you see yourself that way. But if Paul can say that about himself, and then he qualifies why he wrote what he said, you know, in, in, in chapter 1 he says, I persecuted the church. What he means by persecution, not like the persecution you and I feel where there's self-doubt or ridicule or we don't actually feel accepted, right? Paul murdered and tracked down Christians on behalf of what he thought God called him to do. Paul was a murderer. And yet he is the least of all the apostles. And in the grace, he says this, right? He says, but thank God, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So I just want you to hear something this morning. It's not in my notes, but I want you to hear something that's just sticking out to me is no matter where you are, no matter how close you feel to God, no matter where you feel like you're following him or you're not, you're in that ditch or in that rut or you're on the mountaintop, right? You can thank God for where you are anywhere, whether it's the peak or the valley. The peak or the valley, because he's the same God. 
in the same God that would take a murderer and say, go build my church. Think about that for just a second. He takes someone who is destroying the churches, dividing the churches, killing the churches, says, no, actually, Paul, I'm such a good God that I could turn your murderous heart into a builder for me. And that thing that you struggle with, that thing that we all have, all that, you know, the thing that we have, I'm like, gosh, I hope nobody ever sees that thing. If God could rescue Paul and build his church, you and I could be a minister for him in the heavenly places as well. As well. Guys, it's time. Let's go. It's time, right? It's time. We, and, and, and here's the thing. I get it. We feel this way. Like, I feel this way. Matter of fact, I, my call, the ministry was out of Ephesians 3. Like, when I was like, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And, and I came across that pastor. I'm like, wait, Paul feels exactly like I'm the least of all. Like, really? Paul's saying that. And then I got wrapped up in his story, and I started trying to figure out what God wanted me to do. And, and here's the thing. We unknowingly sometimes persecute other Christians in the church, right? We do it on accident. We do it on purpose sometimes. But at the church at Corinth, that here's the thing, was doing it in full view, right? They were doing it in full view. They didn't, you know, they were just doing it just out in the open. But I wanted to leave you with this. If you believe that Paul is the least of all apostles, okay? This is weird. I don't know why my message was going this way. But if you believe Paul was the least of all the apostles and that you believe in faith that God could take a murderer and make him a builder, right? Sometimes we persecute the church and Jesus when we don't take our place amongst the family and contribute, right? Because we withhold. And God is not a God that withholds. And so this is the thing. This is not a wag your finger, shame your moment. I'm saying we get to do this. Because remember last week we were talking about this morning as we were praying for the service. If we don't, if we're not, hearts are not prepared to worship, we're not prepared for heaven, Right? We get to do this. And I love the worship this morning. I love the response. Thank you so much for that. Let's keep after it because that's how we push the kingdom of darkness back is in worship and in prayer. And if Paul could come back from persecution and help build the church, can't we too? Right? Can't we too? Did talk about the idea of worship. And, and here's the thing I was thinking for me, just personally, like when I worship, when I feel withdrawn, typically I worship out of shame and instead of freedom. I'm worshiping in the, God, thank you so much for rescuing me. Thank you so much for, for, for in, in grace, accepting me and receiving me anyway. And so, I'm not, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't lament at our sin and our issues before God and each other, but we should worship as free persons because of Christ, because he's free. He's free from death. He's free from this world, and you and I should worship in spite of that. And again, I just think a lot of times when I'm quiet or I'm not very engaged, it's because I'm worshiping and lamenting over the separation that I feel. And Jesus is like, what separation? What, either my death closed the gap or it didn't. What separation? And so the greater the dismay at the sin still present in our lives, the greater of joy being rescued. And so that's where we stop. That's where I stop. It's the way I just lament over the, des- the separation and the stuff that's still act- working out in my life. And I never get to the joy of, wait, no, I've been saved from much. And I'm being saved from much. And so just truth number one. Engaged worship. This is back for last week. 
is worshiping in exaltation as free people, not slaves. That's engaged worship. In an exaltation, you're like, well, that's a fancy word. It just means elation and jubilation and rejoicing. And that's what I heard and saw this morning. We were rejoicing, not in shame, but because we are free, because chain, Satan's chains have been broken off. Right? And then back to verse 10. Let me just read it again. But by, gra- by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. And his grace towards you and towards me is not in vain. His grace toward that thing that you don't want anyone to know or anyone to see, right, is not in vain. Praise God. Praise God. We should be excited about that. We should be teary about that. We should walk away and amazed by that. Verses 12 through 19. Paul deals with the implications of no resurrection because that's the thing. Our hope and faith, if it's built on Jesus and his resurrection, the Corinthians, for some reason, are still struggling with that. So now, I love this. Just this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed, this is what Paul does. He says, is raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So we're talking about now end times. Paul's shifting his focus, and he says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then that means Christ hasn't been raised. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about if you believe that Jesus is returning, you are, we are a prophetic people, right? Christians are supposed to be a prophetic people, eagerly awaiting Jesus's return. And at times, Paul has referred to the Corinthians and to us as, as end times people. We should worship as end times people. Because why? Because What happens if he comes back in the middle of a song and we're sitting not engaged? I'm just saying. Now, is that going to keep us from him? No. But, like, is that what we want to do, right? We should live our lives. We should worship. That's what Paul's saying to the Corinthians. We should have everything in the cup being poured out as an engaged and fully on board for who Jesus is. And that his return is imminent. I don't often think of it that way. I should. His return is imminent. And the reason Christians stand in contrast to the culture around us is because we should live resurrection, resurrected lives. And what do I mean by that? What does resurrected lives mean? And so he's like, in spite of all the hard things, in spite of inflation, in spite of politics, in spite of social media, in spite of Ukraine, in spite of all the things in the world, in spite of COVID and masking and all the other stuff that we like to divide ourselves over, we should be a people of hope, faith, promise, poise. 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 Secure. Do you know what poise is? It's security. It's being secure. But not in ourselves, right? Because I fail all the time. But secure in who Jesus is. Or actually, maybe we should do this instead. Maybe we should exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. Right? What does... The Holy Spirit spurring us on and gifting us toward loving and being joyful and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. 
right? That's poise, self-control. Christians should stand out because the surrounding culture usually doesn't do those things, right? Like if we, read, if we, if we decided to go out into Fort Worth or in Arlington or Dallas and said, hey, would you describe today's day in America as a culture that is full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, how many people would say a yes to that? Not many, if at all, Right? Christians should stand out because the surrounding culture doesn't. It's a problem when the surrounding culture does a better job than Christians. It's a problem, right? And you want to stand out, have poise. You want to stand out in this season, have poise. You want to have a voice for the voiceless, have poise. You want to make a difference, have poise and self-control during this midterm election year. I've got competition. Verse 12. Paul is speaking against Corinth that they do not believe in the resurrection. And I bet this is partly true because they had little resurrection in in their lives, right? And in verse 14 says this, No resurrection leads to vanity. He says, So, and if if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So Paul, the work that Paul's doing for Corinth is in vain and their faith is in vain. That's the problem. Right? If Jesus is, erected, is resurrected, then humanity isn't resurrected either. And that's the problem with how Christians live. And that's the thing, right? Paul's trying to get them to see this over and over and over again, is that how we live doesn't just reflect us. It also represents him. It also represents him. And this idea of vanity in verse 17, vanity leads to futility, meaning that we're still sinful because Jesus didn't pay our debt, right? The futility of trying to earn your way to Jesus. And so here's the thing, the implication of this is, and so when we worship and we worship in shame and not in hope, when we worship in, 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 in debt as opposed to freedom, right? Then that means that we're saying that our debt hasn't been paid and payment is required. Yet so many Christians live non-resurrected lives, right? I do, all the time. I get wrapped up in other things. I can look at all the problems I'm facing, all the stuff that's in my world, and I forget that Jesus is resurrected and living on the throne and receiving glory. Paul writes this in verse 19. I just want to read it again. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, in this life, Christ is the crutch just to get us through our day-to-day. That's what he's saying. We are all a people most to be pitied, right? And isn't that usually the, the, the knock against Christians? They were pitied because we turn our brains off and our feelings off, and we believe in a fairy tale. And if you've noticed, if you pick up the sermon guide on the way out, you'll notice the t- title is, because it's Halloween and this is what I do and I could do this, Right? The Gospel According to the Great Pumpkin. Who loves the Great Pumpkin? Anybody watched it yet? Anybody watched it yet with their kids? I have. Like, we've watched it. It's our thing, right? And here's the thing. If we live, and if you're not familiar with the story, if you've ne- who's, who's never seen the Great Pumpkin? A few people have it, right? And so here's this idea, right? It's these group of kids. They're going trick-or-treating, which is what kids love to do, right? You've got Charlie Brown, who always has the bad luck, and he gets rocks every time everybody else gets candy, you know, I love just the contrast there. Well, Linus, one of the other characters, the smartest guy in the group, decides not to go trick-or-treating and instead, instead hangs out in a pumpkin patch 
hoping that the great pumpkin, who's this made-up character who's like a Santa Claus figure, is going to give him presents because he was smarter than everybody else, right? And so if we live non-resurrected lives, we are like Linus a fool. We're saying we don't believe. Believing in the great pumpkin having about the same kind of impact on those around us. And if you're familiar with our channel, I, go watch it because I'm going to reference it again here in a minute. But there's a couple times the kids come back and go, you're making a mistake. You're a fool. And that's the thing that Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. They're fools because here's another truth. Living non-resurrected lives helps no one find hope in the resurrection. Living non-resurrected lives helps no one find hope in the resurrection. Re- resurrection excuse me. Verse 20, Christ is the first fruits among the dead. Just as we are to give God our first fruits, Christ is the first fruits to death. Christ became death. He went upon a tree for you and for me. If Christ is the initial payment, the, home, the Holy Spirit is the deposit that guarantees our inheritance, as Paul would write in, in Ephesians. You and I, we the Corinthians, all have an inheritance in Christ. It's always been that way. It's always been that way because we'll see because Adam sinned and he fell in the garden and became separated from God. And we inherited that death. Until the new Adam came. Jesus is the new Adam. He takes the old Adam, replaces the old Adam, stands far apart from the old Adam as the perfect Adam. Paul says it in verse 21. Let me read that over you as well. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. I love that picture. That through Adam, through the things that we all struggle with, Jesus now, the new Adam, replaces him. He doesn't fix him. He replaces him. So that thing you're holding on to hope and faith in that God will take away, no, actually, he's going to replace that thing in us. He's going to replace the hard things in this world. Because that's what he does. As much as we want to fix ourselves to actually know we will be replaced with a new life, a new heart, a heart of flesh. Verses 23 through 28. Paul discussing, now he's really talking about the end times. Now the Greek word for end times, by the way, is perusia, perusia. And so here's the thing, you can't discuss the resurrection without the end times, nor the end times without the resurrection. Paul's been teasing this for Several chapters now, right? The idea that we're supposed to be an eschatological, I can't even, I never said, I don't know why I put it in my notes. Eschatological, there you go. Eschatological people, we're supposed to be end times people or resurrected people, right? We'll talk more about that next week of what the resurrected reality looks like for us. But I just want you to understand the order. Here's the order, right? Christ, the first fruits among the dead, Christ, the first fruits among the living, and then the end where Christ delivers the kingdom to the Father. Right? He's the first fruits on either side of the equation. And it says, hey, God, I did all this, but here you go. One of the questions we got, uh, I think, in, in discussion yesterday at the retreat was, is, is what was it? Is Jesus, um, is Jesus supreme? And, you know, so like, what does that mean? Because God is supreme and above all things is Jesus also, right? 
And the reality of it is, is yes, he is, but he's supreme in his submission to the Father. His supremacy is in submission to the Father. And so on earth, Christ, God in the flesh, submitted to the Father, the resurrected Christ, submitted by not claiming the kingdom he purchased with his own blood. Right? And I just love that picture of we make it about ourselves, and it is in some ways, but it's also about the rest of the world as well and the rest of the kingdom. The resurrection just doesn't change us individually. It should change everything around us. For he must reign until all the enemies have been made a footstool. Okay, so we'll do this next week, but I just want to say there's different schools of thought when it comes to the end times. And so, like, there's going to be a millennial kingdom. Some say it, it's a literal, some say it's metaphorical, but there will be a millennial reign. We'll see that next week, a thousand-year reign of Jesus before everything's done. It's either happening or it's going to happen. But then there's these other thoughts, right? It's like, is God going to take his believers back? That's pre-mill, right, before tribulation. There's the mid-trib, like we'll experience some of the hardest times on earth, which, by the way, like, if this isn't the hard times, I don't know what the hard times are going to be. But here's the thought. Here's the thought that I want you to, to, to walk away with today. The Bible talks about the end times in such a way that if, the Christ, if his believers and followers weren't protected, they would fall away. It's going to be so hard. It's so hard. So you've got the pre-trib, you know, we're going to be taken away. We've got the mid-trib. We're going to taste some of it. There's the post-trib where it's like, no, everything's going to get better. And then there's the, the, the metaphorical camp that says, no, actually, we're in the millennial kingdom now. But here's the thing. At the end of all the schools of thought is this, that death, the final enemy, is destroyed. Verse 27, I'm going to point that back on the board, says this. I'm getting old. I can't read this anymore. For he must reign until... Actually, it's 28. No, is that 20? Yeah, there it is. Okay, I got it. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted. Here you go. When it says all things are put in subjection, this is our hope this morning. It is plain that it is said that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Right? There it is. All things are going to be subjected. Either it's going to be subjected to him or we're going to be accepted those that have put things in subjection already to him. That's the only exception to the rule. And so back to the gospel of the great pumpkin. This, again, you know, at the end, right? Linus Snoopy's walking through the pumpkin patch, and Linus thinks it's a great pumpkin, and he passes out from joy, and it's just the dog, and, you know, and Sally's there with him, if you know, and Sally has a thing for Linus, and Linus, not so much Sally, right? You always see her face turn red in the hearts, and Linus just puts his blanket over his head, right? I love Linus and his security blanket, right? And she goes off on him, right? You know, and it's the, you know, and Charlie says, you know, Linus says, he goes, you know, it says never, something about uh, never scorn a woman. He goes, never get between a woman and her tricks or treats, right? And that's what he says. I love that, just that picture. But here's the interesting thing about the great pumpkin, and this is where the gospel is. It's this. Linus walked into a pumpkin patch 
that he did not plant. At least we don't think he planted because he doesn't say that he did. He takes ownership of it and says this. If it's sincere, the great pumpkin will choose me and give me presents. Sound like anything familiar to any of our walks? Right? We didn't create this world. We just populate it. We're supposed to steward it. And then somehow, some way, if we live a good enough life, God will bestow favor on us in a world full of hurt and hurting people. And then when we get dismayed because we are hurt and we hurt as well as people. And yet sometimes we have to come to the end of ourselves and say, gosh, aren't we a lot like Linus living in the pumpkin patch hoping for a present from a Santa Claus figure as opposed to God? Right? He used the pumpkin patch. He did not create in hopes of appeasing the great pumpkin for a reward, and that is us before Jesus Christ. And here's the thing, and Ben's going to come back up. This is not mine, but it's a friend from school. And he said this. His name's Dale. He said, in and of ourselves, we can't please God enough to save ourselves. Right? I agree with that. That's what I think about a lot. But then he said this. He added this. He goes, likewise, we can't punish ourselves enough to pay for our sins. We can't please enough and we can't punish enough. And then back to that picture of worship, I think when I'm not engaged with worship, I'm trying to punish myself to make up for where I've fallen short. And yet God says, you know what? It's not about punishing yourself. It's about accepting who I am. And so if you get yourself caught in this rat race of appeasing and punishing, and this is an appeasing week, and this is a punishing week, and I've lived extra bad, Jesus would say, it's not your pumpkin patch. It's not your pumpkin patch. And like, unlike Charlie Brown who gets rocks, Jesus doesn't hand out rocks because he is the rock. He is the rock. And so I just want to leave you here with this. Through the resurrection and return of Jesus, will you and I both will obtain heaven. And if we could bottle all the sincerity in the world, we could still not even come But yet we have a God who through Paul said this morning, for grace I am what I am, and it was not in vain. You are not in vain. Your sin is not in vain. Your problems are not in vain. And we have a hope that goes far beyond that was written over 2,000 years ago. And so as we sing in response, I'm going to ask you to stand. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, just quietly at your seat, ask the Holy Spirit where he wants you to grow as a resurrection person. As men, we were saying, what do we do? And here's the funny thing about men, right? It's this. Like, what are you good at? Is it living like Jesus, loving like Jesus, or serving like Jesus? And by overwhelming majority, me included in this number, we'd say, well, we're really good at serving, right? Because why? Because men are usually task-oriented. And so we could just check the box. We could check the box. I think that's how we work out our salvation. If we could check the box and maybe appease him a little bit and shame ourselves on the back end when we fall short, maybe the ledger or the account will work itself out somehow. And Jesus says, there is no account. Either I resurrected or I didn't. 
Either we live resurrected lives or we don't. And back to the truth, the more we do it, the more hope we bring. The less we do it, the less hope we bring. Because there is a world that thinks that you and I are Linus's. Fools sitting in a pumpkin patch waiting for Jesus to resurrect. Amen. Amen. Lord, come before you as we sing. I ask that actually we are Linus's. Let us agree that we're Linus's. And we all have our security blankets, whether it's a blanket or something else. But I pray that as we respond, that Spirit, you'll speak. And let us just see, where are we in regards to living a resurrected life? But I do want to say, God, it's not about appeasing you. And it's not about shaming us either. Rather, it's just taking hold of, Jesus, what you've offered. And maybe that's what we need to do today. I don't know. Right? But here's what I know. I confess, Lord Jesus, that you died on my behalf. That you were buried. That you were resurrected. And now you are sitting at the right hand of the Father until all things have been made your footstool, including me. May we do that this morning. And may you enlarge your view of who you are. Because you're not a pumpkin handing out presents. You are the resurrected son who deserves all glory and all praise forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. May we sing.